Welcome to Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast, where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by reciting Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, coming to you from Washington, D.C. With me on the line from a darkened room in Turkey is my co-host, Murat. Murat, how's it going? <laughs> oh, yes, good memory there. Uh, it's, it's, it's going well. I'm a little, uh, loopy after my flight, but we'll see how, we'll see how the proof will be in the pudding. Yes. Yes. Well, my apologies to anybody if, um, our audio quality is off here or if there are a lot of weird background noises. Um, I think I heard a dog barking at one point over there with you. Um, we're using Skype instead of FaceTime and, uh, the connection quality is having some issues. So I apologize for that. But uh, with that said, let's get right into it. Uh, today's episode is going to be us trying to actually do something to solve America's cultural divisions. We're going to talk about America's cultural divisions. Um, I, I think, you know, the every time I've mentioned before when I did that little Fox News, um, hash, that Fox News you know, story recap sign off. That what we're seeing and what people who watch Fox News are seeing are very, very different. And that's kind of a big cultural gap just to start off with right there when you want to talk about political things. Um, I think it was Seth Meyers this week, or maybe it was Bill Maher, did a, a bit where they just showed you here is what Fox News's website had as its main story um, the day that, uh, that Senator Flake did that huge speech denouncing trumpism and uh and fox news's main story was something about trying to indict hillary clinton over the uranium deal or something like that and down at the bottom it's only reference to the flake speech was flake i could work with trump on some issues yeah i mean that's i remember it was back in i think 2006 the first time that i because i never watched fox news because why would i randomly have been watching fox news but I went to Fox News' website one day at work when I was bored, and uh, I was, oh, you know, are they as biased and terrible as people say they are? Well, let's take a look. And I looked at the, at the main page, and there was a story about how Republicans had voted to cut some amount of education funding on something. And the Democrats tried to stop it, and the Democrats didn't have enough votes because they were not in the majority. And so what was the headline that Fox News put on the link when you would click on that? So the one that everybody sees when they don't bother to click every single story. The headline was Democrats fail to save education. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, OK. It's not Republicans cut education, which is what's happening. It was Democrats fail to save education. Makes them look like losers who can't do anything. It was just kind of horrific. Um, yeah. David, do you have any idea – you've lived in other countries where they have lots of other – so you've been exposed to lots of other um, news sources. Here in America, we used to have – you know, if you go back far enough, you start to get to where we had newspapers that really were for political parties. Um, the idea of having your news silos, of getting your information from a very biased source is not new. Um, but – it, it, it seems to have, it seems to be to me that the era of the 50s through through 90s was sort of an aberration where we had you know three or four big broadcast networks and um, those broadcast networks sort of had to cater to everybody and we were all getting our news sources from those broadcast networks 
And then now we've gotten siloed into the 400 different channels everybody has access to where you can get exactly micromanaged. You're kind of, oh, I'm a right winger, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist. So I'll go watch this. I'm a right winger, but I'm a crazy conspiracy theorist. So I'm going to watch Infowars, um, all of that stuff. When you're when you've been in other countries, um, how have you found the variety of news sources and the ways people that consume them? like in Turkey, for example? Um, I mean, I've I've heard stories about, oh, and this newspaper that criticized Erdogan was taken over and shut down. How how do people actually get their news there? Does it feel? Um, well, I mean, at like this, this point, Turkey is uh, I mean. I'm not sure how you know useful the comparison um, will be because I mean Turkey is as you hinted at uh, you know that towards the end of your question there um, Turkey is on the way towards a um, much more closed authoritarian media environment where um, I mean already the <clears throat> um, number of journalists who are uh, imprisoned or under pressure by the authorities is, you know, more than, I mean, for, for, I think most of the last five years or so, it's been the highest in the world. Um, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily bad. I mean, and there's no, there's no equivalent to that in the United States. Um, thankfully, and we've actually touched on this before that um, as you know, pessimistic as one can get um, thinking about the news in America, you know, for me, just because I, I come back to this country and study it. Right. Um, you know, there's some things that I, that I truly love about uh, Turkey and you know, the Turks I've, I've met and interacted with. Um, that I'd like terribly miss every time I go back to the States. But um, one of the things that Turkey also does for me is remind me that for all the whining and belly aching that we do in America, you know, we still have, we still have a system worth defending. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, Turks are in the position of having to like fight to rebuild uh, their own society, you know, you know, to be like remotely, you know, uh, democratic, accountable, and, and, and just. Um, but as far as the media environment goes, you know, in Turkey, in the in the seventies, um, in the lead up to the major military coup in nineteen eighty, the um, situation was so bad that people, you know, the, the tribalism and political violence was so bad that people identified themselves by the newspaper under your arm, mm. and if you were a man, the facial hair that you had, and between those two things, people would know what your politics were, and they might kill you in the street. You know, the, there was fighting at that level, um, and that was part of what led the—I mean, laid the groundwork for the coup. Um, this is. A little bit of a field of our of our subjects. I'm not going to go any further than that. But um, you know, not only as you said, you know, in America, this is uh, you know we know that this is the case. Like uh, 150 years ago, there were like party papers and like regional party papers. You know, like the New York Republicans would have this paper, or the you know Philadelphia Democrats would have 
that paper. Um, at least I understand that my understanding is that that's the case. Uh, and that was also the case in Turkey much more recently. Um, and, uh, you know, an interesting question is whether this polarization that we're seeing in America where people are separating into these more harshly and angrily and precisely defined ideological groups, uh, whether that's a bad thing, because it's definitely different and it's definitely uncomfortable, but you know, political scientists have long um, been frustrated with American parties because the parties were so crazy. You know, like each party was in fact a coalition of many groups that might be identifiable as parties in another context. You know, so you have like the far right, crazy, conspiratorial, lunatic Republicans who um, really have nothing to do with, uh, I mean, on, a, on an intellectual, conceptual basis, there is no connection between them and uh, the sort of the business Republicans, yeah, business Republicans, the country club Republicans. Socially liberal, you know, socially liberal, but doesn't really care that much either way, um, and is just voting for economic issues, but is also um, turned off by unseemly uh, sort of boorish or um, or illogical behavior. Right. You know, so the the people who are turned off by Palin, the people who are hopefully going to be turned off by Roy Moore, you know, those types of people. And, um, you know, my understanding is that there are, there are some political scientists who just as political scientists, because <laughs> like the tools of their trade tell them to look for, uh, ideologically defined political parties. They were just frustrated that it's like, no, it's not supposed to work like this. You know, right. parties are supposed to be the way they are, you know, in Europe or in the rest of the world. They're not supposed to be like, uh, you know, America throughout the 20th century where you had, you know, racist good old boy Democrats somehow coexisting in a party with, um, you know, Northeastern firebrand liberal crusaders. Um, and then, you know, the same thing being the case for the Republicans, where the Republicans would, you know, the the um, the Rockefellers <clears throat> would occasionally have to do battle with the John Birchers, but they kept the John Birchers in the party. You know, they, they, they continued to, you know, appeal to their votes. They just didn't let them sort of control the platform. Um, you know, and so you have this tremendous breadth and like, maybe it's a good thing. It, it, it's not comfortable to have this breakup going on because it's unusual and we don't know where it's going to lead. But, um, you know, it is an open question, I think, as to whether it may be, um, You know, whether like the old fuddy-duddy, oh, things were so much better in the past when they were the way I remember them, right? Like looking th through that um, fogey-ish reaction and, and trying to think about the opportunities that might come from a more 
um, you know, political environment where the ideological lines are a little clearer. Right. And one of the things people have been noting is that part of the problem we've had with partisanship and increased polarization is that the parties have been starting to be more ideologically defined than they used to be in the sense that, um, you know, as you said, now, particularly sort of because we had that moment with FDR where you get a shift of a lot of people who had been Republicans into the Democratic Party. But they hadn't gotten rid of the racist Southern Democrats. And then you get to Nixon and he's sort of like, hey, racist Southern Democrats, come on in. I'm sure Republicans have a different take on how that occurred. Uh, In fact, some of the Republicans I talked to will still insist, but it was the Democrats in the South who voted for X, Y and Z. And it's like, well, did those some of those people became Republicans later? And And where are they now? Yeah, where are they now? but anyway, we had we've had a couple of these little shifting alignments to try to get this stuff sorted out a little bit better. And um, part of the problem of the last uh, 20 years or so is that the parties really do have ideological beliefs that they sort of that they cling to. Um, and you've gotten to the point where why would a Democrat you say, oh, well, in theory, bipartisanship is good. Democrats should work with Republicans. But why would any Democrat vote with Republicans on a thing that's going to you know, cut education funding or, you know, cut services to the poor. Why would they want to do that? That's just not what they want to do. The parties are trying to do things that are really strongly at odds with each other on many issues. Yeah. And, you know, <sighs> man, it hurt. Yeah. Well, so the, image that comes to mind when you say that when you make that last point is the self obsessed inflated poofy face and bouffant hair of Joe Scarborough (laughs) and you know to me he's not the worst like there, there are a lot of terrible terrible people in the public eye and he's not the worst. He's not really even among the worst. Yeah, I mean, but the gap between him and, say, Sean Hannity is is, is sizable. Exactly, exactly. However, um, in you know, I am hardly a radical, but there are times when. You know, being able to all like slap each other on the back and like remember what we all hold in common is not what we need to do. Sometimes you do need to actually point out which side are you on? You know, are you on the side that says it's okay for whatever thing to happen? You know, or do you say we have to break? I mean, it may take breaking some eggs. Not, I'm not, I'll just finish my thought. It may take breaking some eggs, but we have to change it. And we have to, we have to figure out how to change it. Now, what does breaking eggs mean? I don't mean, you know, I, that was a sort of bad uh, expression to, to use because that is, I believe, um, sort of most famous for being uttered by Stalin uh, about, you know, reshaping the Soviet economy. And that's not the kind of egg breaking that I'm referring to. Um, I think uh, stepping on toes would have been more what I was more what I was hoping stepping for. Stepping on toes, like, which of course is most famously said by Hitler in his address in Munich. 
I'm kidding. Is that actually true? No, that is not true. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been kind of funny if it was like, I'm sorry here, but we have to No expression is acceptable anymore because all expressions were said by mass murderers at some point. Yeah, right. Right. But, uh... But no, the point, you know, the point being that, like, so what, what am I actually talking about? What's an example? Well, um, you know, the voting rights era, we were talking about that before. That's a good example. You know, you don't, like, which side are you on? Do, you know, black Americans get to have access to decent educations or do they not? Do you step on the toes of the racist communities that don't want kids being bust in? Or do you say, uh, you know, let's just make sure we can get along at the end of the day, right? Like, which is more important. It's more important to pursue the, the thing that is true. You know, the principle that is just, um, than to, you know, maintain like friendliness between people, some of whom are right and some of whom are wrong. Well, and that, that's the wrap and, on and now, the first day. It's like, it's like, okay, what does the solution look like? The solution isn't going to be a perfect solution, but we have to find a goddamn solution to this problem of, um, police gunning down black, you know, unarmed black men. It's just, and it's gonna, it's gonna stick in the craw. It's gonna, it's gonna be, you know, a heavy weight coming down on the toes of police, but it's like, this is, I mean, this is an example, I think, of one of these issues where it's like, which which side are you on? Are you on the side that says, yeah, it's complicated and we got to trust the police because they're doing a hard, you know, they have a hard job? All those things are true. These shootings are complicated. You know, police do have a very hard job. And it's particularly, um, it, it definitely does become harder when uh, spirits are inflamed in the way that they are now but you know is it like wait you know i, I think this is an, just an, another example of uh it being useful to ask yourself the question like what am i trying to do here am i trying to sweep this under the rug or am i trying to push for a solution to a real problem and if i say eh, it's complicated and police have hard jobs and we shouldn't question them you know that can't possibly be part of the solution as opposed to, um, you know, sharpening the contradictions and pushing for confrontation to say like, no, this issue is important and it has to be resolved. And that's where, I mean, to bring this back to the cultural side of it, um, you know, we have, there's the culture of people who don't have to deal with a lot of those issues, which is to say well-off white people whose interactions with the police have always been positive. I, for example, have never had a negative experience with the police. I just haven't uh, in my, in all my 33 years. The closest I ever came was the time I got um, a policeman came over to my car because he thought I might've been casing a house because um, I was actually waiting for a friend to finish a college interview and I fell asleep in my car. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, um, but then he sees me in my school uniform with my jacket and tie and all of that. And he's like, okay, yeah, you can just go. Um, right. you know, that's the kind of interaction that a white person gets to have with the police a lot of the time. Um, you know, that was my interaction. If your interaction with the police has only ever been like that and you hear these stories about, oh, about, um, you know, you don't want, one of the things that people don't want to believe that 
injustices occur. It's one of the reasons we blame victims. We want to find yeah. a way to say that what happened wasn't a horrible injustice. We want to find – just emotionally, we want to find a way to justify the world and say it can't be that this young black kid was just shot for no reason. He has to have brought it on himself somehow or the world wouldn't yeah. be just. And so so when they started doing a lot of the, the, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests for all of this – you, you you see a lot of these white people who again have never had the negative interactions with the police who turn on the TV and see a lot of black people in the streets marching and it seems like some of whenever you have enough people gathered in one place there's going to be some amount of violence not because the movement wants violence but because when you've got that many people in one place you're going to have a couple people who break windows or do stupid things right. i don't understand why people damage cars that's something that i've never understood but it happens and it happens when it's a lot of white people too when we saw at some of those like wto protests but anyway, um, you said... Yeah, or, or I know, I remember there was like a, um, I mean, like at exactly the same time as, as one of the Black Lives Matter protests that was covered, you know, quote unquote riots that was covered extensively. There was a, um, it, it was like in Baltimore or something, the Orioles, well, you know, it might not have been, it might not have been in Baltimore, um, but it was a pretty close parallel, except for it was just a sports thing. And it was a huge amount of property damage, but it didn't get covered because... Well, it got covered people... here. Because well, I'm very did, close to Baltimore. It didn't get covered yeah. in the same way. As yeah, all I, I know, I know. I know what you mean. And anyway. actually, this is this is a pet peeve of mine, and I, I hate myself for falling, for like, uh, you know, doing it myself. Um, but I hate this thing of, like, why is no one talking about X, Y, Z? Right. When it's like, you are talking about it. And if you are talking about it, a bunch of other people in your bubble are probably also all talking about it. Well, I can understand so, it if you feel that you're looking at the other bubbles and like there could be a story that nobody else is covering. But, right, and but, you were but again, about, there's, there's got to be a better way of framing it, which right. is like, why is no one pointing out X, Y, Z? Just say your point. Well, my favorite part about that was when Sean Hannity read some bit where he was quoting an AP report and said, you won't hear that in the mainstream media. And it was just like, oh my god, how stupid are you? But anyway, um, so you have these you have these issues where some amount of violence comes up, and people says, well, we would support their issues if they would only protest nonviolently and quietly. So what did they do? They started taking a knee during the national anthem, and what happened then? Oh well, you can't do that. That's an unacceptable form of protest. I mean, there because at at the root of the matter, they just I mean. They don't like want to be forced empathy. to recognize right. I feel like the there's deep empathy gap. anguish. Yeah, exactly. They just don't have – to them, there's no value to stopping police from shooting black teenagers because it doesn't affect them um, right. in any way, shape, or form, whereas they do see these guys kneeling during the flag. And, right. and that, to cut to another cultural division in America, these same people who are so mad about disrespecting the flag by taking a knee, which – I would say, as an aside, kneeling is more respectful than standing in almost every context. Um, but these people who are so upset about the flag being disrespected, um, they're like, oh, you don't see this happening at NASCAR events. And then they cut to clips of NASCAR events where they're flying Confederate flags. And you're like, <laughs> which is really more offensive to the American flag, taking a knee in protest during the anthem or the Confederate flag? And... That's a cultural gap. Your answer to that question is a cultural division in America. We're yeah. both on the side that says the Confederate flag is a much greater blasphemy against what America stands for than any amount of social justice-based kneeling protests. Right. 
Yeah, well, I, I certainly believe that. Uh, we've talked about that before. Um, but that, in terms of cultural divisions, and sorry to focus on that, I mean, they're, they're one of the really salient ones that I pick up, at least in a lot of these issues, is um, you know, you you kind of mentioned it, but um, if I can. Uh, highlight some aspects of it, but you know there are people who believe in individual responsibility, and there are people who believe in structural causes, and never the twain shall meet. You know, that's that seems like one of the huge just chasms in our society um, is between people who say, you know, the, the groups of you know sort of the cultural tribes of people who say, uh, like. On the one hand, yeah, you know, individual effort makes makes a difference. But if you are X, Y, Z, you will have this kind of life. And they have they point to statistics, you know, and they can. I to the extent that I have to put myself in one of these groups, like I want to put myself in that group because that's just like social science. Like there are there are studies like. These things are, these effects are real. Uh, you know, it doesn't take completely signing away your own ability to think for yourself to like be able to read some of this work that's been done on, you know, uh, the kinds of structural effects that class, race, gender, sexuality, um, religion, I mean, all sorts of things potentially, um, the effects that these have on on the way people's um, lives are shaped in, in whatever context. However, that being said, um, I also place myself or am inclined to place myself in the other category, which is that, you know, yes, obviously these factors make a difference, but they never make as much difference as your individual attitude. You know, people who think that, right. And, and people who think that are always, of course they're going to look to, well, what was, you know, why did, why was that, you know, why was Trayvon wearing that hoodie? Didn't he know what people would think if they saw him with his hood, you know, his hood up or whatever kind of other victim blaming approach. But it's, an, it, you know, it's a victim blaming that comes out of a mentality of, you know, what can we each individually do in any circumstance to get a better outcome? And it's not inherently illegitimate because sometimes that attitude is, is just correct. You know, is a woman who is at a bar and her date slips a drink, you know, slips something into her drink and then rapes her when she's, you know, completely uh, unable to remember or think, you know, clearly, you know, she to blame? Obviously not. You know, should she have not had a drink? You know, it's like, well, she shouldn't have gone drinking. Like, that's it's it would be absurd to say that she's to blame for being drugged um but you know if you're it's also not insane to say like well this is why i believe in um you know only meeting people through family and church and you know not having any relations before marriage and, and blah, blah, blah. Like 
people in those people who have those lifestyles are hardly free from sin themselves, but um, you know, different choices do create different outcomes. Um, and in my own life, you know, one of the ways that I see this division more, you know, pretty clearly laid bare is, uh, I was like, when I was a child, I was tremendously obese. And as a child, obviously this was not my doing, you know, this was a, this was an effect of my family environment. Um, and I decided not to live like that. You know, I decided to change my, my life and I lost a huge amount of weight. And again, it's like, I find myself teetering on the edge of this cultural division because on the one hand, it's like my life would not be what it was if I had not made drastic efforts to change my own behavior and what I ate, you know, my exercise, that sort of thing. Um, however, I also know that as a, you know, I lost the weight when I was a teenage boy and I can look at pictures of my father from when he was a young man. And it's like, I had this tool just waiting for me of like the physiology of my body that when I, when I did those different behaviors because of these structural factors flowing through me, you know, young athletic sort of male inclined to that body, it inclined to a more athletic body type. I could do that. And so the choice that I made was then reinforced by the structural factors. And, um, I think there are lots of people, particularly like white men who think that, Oh yeah, I made this choice. I made a choice to live a certain way. Therefore other people could also make that choice and live a certain way. And they don't understand how, as I you know, try to understand other people with other body types, for example, might be just as um, disciplined and determined to lose the weight but they don't have the genetic sort of toolkit um, waiting for them to uh, to trigger that I was able to take advantage of. And I don't know. This is I, no. I, th I think I this, is, for, this is actually on on uh, in, in the sense that there are no tangents. I have a follow up story which is very similar. Yeah. Which is you may even remember this back in junior year of college. I, after having been obese since the age of ten finally decided to cut back on food and exercise and do all of these things. And I lost 40 pounds that semester. And I was feeling really great about myself. And I remembered saying to somebody, oh, well, you know, if, you, if you're if you fat, you're just lazy. I was just lazy. You, know, you just got to get your individual, you know, strength and willpower together and you're going you're gonna to lose weight. And then somebody that I've been talking to who was very thin and was, um, is, you know, would go off to medical school was sort of like, oh, no, no, there are actually all these other factors involved in, you know, X, Y, and Z. And that's, it's really not, that's really not fair. And then that was the summer that I had my first summer job. The previous summers I'd been in physical therapy. And my first summer job, where, which was the one where I would eventually be looking up Fox News stuff on occasion. Um, and, sitting still all day in an office environment and then going out to buy lunch, um, you know, yeah. having fast food or whatever, I put back on a bunch of those pounds. 
and then I went back to college for senior year and was able to, you know, stabilize it a bit. And then I would later go through another during my last year of law school, I was able to lose 80 pounds because I tried even harder and had a mix of circumstances that were even better. And a friend of mine who'd also been to law school said, oh, well, everybody gets into the best shape of their lives 3L year because you have the time to do that stuff. And then I graduated and I managed to keep the weight off very like, at a lot of effort. It was really taking up a lot of my effort and a lot of my time and a lot of energy to keep this weight off. And then this year I started pouring a bunch of pounds back on with a new office job where I kept eating out all the time because I it started earlier than previous jobs. So I didn't have time to make myself breakfast because I didn't want to get up at five in the morning. Um, and uh, and then suddenly I put a bunch of pounds back on that I'm going to have to get rid of now. So what yeah. you what you have there is a situation that I now understand a lot better as being of being one where. Um, the individual effort was hugely important. I had to decide to make that call. I had to put that energy in. I had to have the willpower to do it. But it was also because the circumstances were appropriate that it was able to work so well. There are going to be a lot of yeah. other people who are working really hard um, who do not have a lot of the random structural advantages I did. If you want to, When people say, oh, poor people need to eat healthier. But one of the things that gets ignored in that discussion, which I've, I've been reading accounts by poor people that explain – the problem is healthy food spoils. And if you're poor, you cannot afford to have your food spoil. You just can't. You have to make sure you eat everything. You can't afford to throw money away buying a bunch of food that's going to go bad. For me, I don't. I can yeah. buy a bunch of bananas, and if the last two bananas go bad before I get to them, it's not a big deal. I throw them away. But if I were on a severe food budget and I had to start throwing away a bunch of food that I had gotten because – you know, it's spoiled or something happened to it. That's a problem. Whereas a lot of the unhealthy food tends not to spoil as much. Um, well, right. Well, I think just to, to sort of maybe clarify your point and make sure we're on the same page. You know, I'm, I'm picturing here like, you know, some yuppie going out and getting like five kilos of kale. Right. And they spend the time they, you know, they make a date for themselves to like, prepare the food in order to eat it and have a very, the sort of the, the wonderful Mark Bittman lifestyle of eating uh, healthy, fresh vegetables, mostly plant-based diet and preparing food themselves. Um, but a lot of people, particularly, you know, yuppies in this day and age um, also just get slammed with all these different commitments that they have and don't make the time. And so if this, comfortable, actually upwardly mobile, um, young person, you know, lets the kale rot in the fridge while waiting to prepare it, then it doesn't matter. And next, next week, they just, or, you know, next month, let's say they just go and buy another five kilos of kale. Um, but as opposed to that, the, you know, this, uh, the sort of proverbial nickel and dimed American, has to like constantly be putting food on the table, doesn't have the time to necessarily, you know, set aside to like processing and cooking and everything else to uh, properly prepare these, you know, plant-based diets and just like gets fast food or opens up a can of something just because it's easy and ready. That's the point you're making or that's the sort of essentially that point. Yeah. That, there, I mean, what's relevant to bear in mind is that 
administrative, we've been saying this whole time, there are structural factors that take that, that, that happen for all of these things. And one way to visualize it might be um, if you had, if, if you're picturing people at a race and um, they've all got to, you know, get to whatever time and they're all, they're all in a race, but certain structural factors might set you 10 yards further back and certain structural factors might send you 10 yards closer. Now, I'm not going to beat Usain Bolt, no, pretty much no matter how far back. He, he'd have to be a mile back for me he to be. He's pretty fast on that chair. Yeah, if it's a very level track <laughs> and a very clear field, I presumably could. Once I get the speed built up, it depends on how long we're, we're going. Or if it's like a 1% downhill. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, but in general, you know, uh, most people are, you know, it's like, so, so if you look at that, Usain Bolt is your okay, he's he's gotten so good at this that he can overcome a gigantic handicap on this. But it's not reasonable to say, well, you should just be as good as Usain Bolt. It's it's not right. reasonable to say that, you know, everybody who's not white should just be okay with starting 20 yards further back. And, yeah. And, um, well, actually, yes. Right, and, and uh, just before we started, we were talking about this episode I had... Uh, read about of a guy who was mired in debt. Yeah. Um, and you know, the debt issue is just so phenomenally awful for so many people that it's hard for anyone who doesn't have debt dogging them at every step of their lives post, uh, you know, college. It's just hard to, and I, you know, I, as one of these people, it's hard for me to, um, I, I, well, I, I've been basically trying to remind myself how incredibly lucky I am. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's hard to, I think for a lot of people, I mean, a lot of the people who think like, you know what, I'm not lucky. Like I worked really hard to get to where I am and, um, you know, everybody else should just work hard. And of course people are in different circumstances, but you know what, are you just going to tell some people they shouldn't? that they should like expect a handout, right? Like, I mean, that, that is a very wide, it seemingly is a very widespread attitude. Um, and I think it's an understandable one too, because I don't even know myself yet what, I mean, there's no, like, there's no agenda that flows naturally from, um, mindfulness of how lucky I am. Right. Well, you but know, and luck can even own... take a couple of different factors. If you consider, for yeah. example, my situation where I just broken yeah. my spinal cord and was new to being in a wheelchair freshman year of college on a campus that was not very wheelchair accessible. So if we're going to sort of think, what are the points involved here? You've got like, well, he probably gets plus 20 because he went to a really fantastic high school that prepared him for college. Maybe he gets... Um, plus a hundred because he comes from a family where he's not going to graduate with any debt and he's not going to have to be doing a bunch of jobs in the afternoon to, to pay for everything he's doing. And then you're like, well, maybe he gets minus 400 for having just broken his spinal cord. But how do you quantify any of those numbers? It's like, yeah, it was, I was really fortunate to have, to be, have the ability to come out of this without debt and to not have to work during college. But I was also very unfortunate, and and the fact that I was so unfortunate with a wheelchair was mitigated again by coming from a family that was able to provide me better medical care and you know yeah. a better wheelchair and all of that stuff and a better surgery in the first place, which is its own story. Um, 
there are all of these things which all come together, and who has any idea what the net is? I mean, having right. gone through it, I'm sure the net is still highly negative, um, but <laughs> but there, these are all factors that are there. And um, part of the problem I yeah. think we have when it comes to discussions of affirmative action is that um, some of the points that you get are more obvious and quantifiable than others. For example, when people would say, oh, well, you can't have a quota system, and so let's strike down this University of Michigan law thing where we give you um, we give you points based on a bunch of things, and you get like five points if you're a minority, or whatever the system was that they struck yeah. down 15 years ago. Um, and part of the problem with that is it's easily quantifiable. Okay, he's black, so he gets plus five, or whatever the number is. Um, if you're white, you got a bunch of other points added to you at various steps along your life, right, but those right. aren't apparent. You don't know what those are. And maybe you are a white person from a poor background who worked really, really hard on a, on a bunch of things and you had a bunch of other negatives in your column. And then, um, and then, uh, so you get all these other negatives, uh, but those don't get quantified. And then all, and then you very clearly see this other person who gets these plus five points, and you think that that's unfair. But you also have no idea how many points were essentially taken away from them structurally because of their experiences. And so it's it's I, I feel like the real, yeah. the problem with affirmative action is that um, the the penalty the, the when so when white people complain we're the most victimized people in America where white men are. You know, we're the most discriminated against. Reverse discrimination is the biggest threat in America. And people on the other mm-hmm. side of the cultural divide from us are the ones who tend to say that, the Fox News viewers. And part of where that can come from is that, um, you know, if if you're white, it's very – you see when a black guy gets a job and you think you should have gotten it. You don't see the times that that black person applied for jobs and – you know, they've done that test where if you give somebody more of a black-sounding name on the resume, then they get fewer fewer interviews. Like, you don't right. see that. You well, don't get that quantified. Yeah, well, I mean, there's – I totally – I agree with the basic point you're making um, in and actually want to clarify what I what – something that I said before that might have come across the wrong way where I said, like, it's hard to, it's hard to have an agenda flow naturally from this – feeling you know this very subjective feeling of like uh awareness of my of my luck and gratitude for my luck i in some sense i think it is very easy to have an agenda flow from that where you say again which side are you on it's like i am on the side that says no one should have to deal with the things that some people are dealing with you know the, the this incredibly predatory system of uh, debt that just puts people, you know, young people into essentially a lifetime of slavery where they will never actually be building wealth for themselves and their families. They'll always be paying it, you know, massive amounts of, uh, of their future income to pay off, to pay off debts that should, you know, they shouldn't be understood as debts. They should be understood as society's investment in its own, right. You know, future generations. So I think that is I think that is pretty straightforward, uh, and of course the devil's in the details to a great degree. But that I think there is a natural, you know, corollary to this uh, to this feeling. However, I, I agree with what you're saying, and what I meant by that was basically what you're saying, which is how do you quantify these various things? Um, how do you even begin to think that you can quantify them? Um, 
you know, but then even with that, like it should be, it should be relatively, I think, I mean, I think the problem is just that like, it's so hard for Americans to actually learn about American history, like the real history of, you know, things like the, um, you know, the Tulsa pogrom, uh, you know, the early 20th centuries, the way that black wealth was systematically destroyed in so many places as it was being built. That being said, the situation is changing very quickly. And, um, you know, I mean, there's an optics problem here of like two demographically similar, you know, sort of upper middle class white guys talking about, you know, all of like those people. Um, but I think part of the problem is that it's very easy to be out of touch because the the reality is that some, a lot of these numbers are changing very, very quickly. And um, like Donald Trump talking about, you know, the inner city and meaning black people, right? Like, you know, the story that we're telling about, or this story that we're getting into right now about um, uh, the, you know, the cross that black Americans bear, um, it's true in many ways, but it's, but it's also easy to overstate it given how much progress uh, black Americans actually are making. And, and of, also that it varies it varies immensely where you are and what you're trying yeah, to do, exactly, how much exactly. that ends up becoming a problem for you. Yeah, yeah. So, um, no, but I mean, again, anyway, just to uh, move it away from, like, sociological, our naive, uh, amateurish sociological forays into, again, this, this sort of cultural aspect, um, you know, again, no segues, uh, what's the value of your education? You know, Clarence Thomas famously said that, you know, he, uh, you have heard the story, right? About his Yale law school diploma. Um, I've heard, I don't know that I've heard that specific one. I've heard him say a lot of things about Yale. Well, so supposedly he, um, he was eating like a, I don't know, he's eating some piece of food that had like a 50 cent sticker on it. Mm -hmm. And he was inspired at some point to just put that on his Yale law school diploma to denigrate its value because of the sense that he had that people were looking at him and thinking the only reason he is where he is, is because of affirmative action. Right. Um, which by the way, having just been in a wheelchair when we started at Yale, this was a thing for me too, because I would go into a classroom and I would be seriously worried for the first couple semesters that, you know, these people wouldn't know that I wasn't in a wheelchair when I was accepted. So if I say something stupid, they're going to think I was an affirmative action admission. And that is a real that is a real thing that that really emotionally weighed on me during that period. I can imagine. Yeah. 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 And by the way, yeah, it's, Clarence it's, it's Thomas actually good. does. Um, he actually does something which uh, which is very laudable when it comes to affirmative action of a different sh sort, which is that he tries very hard to get his clerks to come from not the biggest named law schools mm. um, because he thinks we've already got plenty of people from Harvard and Yale law doing all of this stuff. Everybody on the Supreme Court is from Harvard or Yale Law. 
And he just sort of says people from smaller schools can be just as competent, and he's not going to hold it against them that they went to a lesser-known school. And that's actually really laudable. Well, you know, and uh, I am not the biggest fan of Clarence Thomas, um, but the reason I brought it up is to point out that, I mean, that 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 mentality, you know, the inclination to think and suspect in the way that he was to react in that way to what, you know, the symbol of that Yale law degree meant in his life, you know, that kind of cagey, uh, flinty, prideful, you know, I want to, I want everyone to know that everything I have, I earned, you know, that attitude, um, is a cultural, um, sort of, uh, I mean, it's the outgrowth of a cultural commitment. You know, it's a, it's a cultural background. Uh, it's this culture that we, you know, it's this cultural, cultural divide that I brought up before of the many that we could potentially pick, uh, in talking about America where, um, he has many people, you know, he has many peers and that's all I really meant to say. Um, but then you one upped it, uh, by, by sharing that I, I had, I had heard that, but I, I hadn't, been, I wasn't thinking about it, but a very good point of like, and he kind of, he shows, um, you know, he lives up to his commitment there. He, um, puts his money where his mouth is and says like, yeah, my Yale law, law degree, it's just a piece of paper. And I want to find smart clerks wherever they are, even if they didn't, you know, check all the boxes that all the hoity-toity uh, elites want them to check. And at the same time, I mean, I'm I'm not a defender of Clarence Thomas in terms of being favorable on Clarence Thomas. But what I found interesting is that the rap on Clarence Thomas is really unfair in a lot of ways. Um, because a lot of people, there's people on the left who try so hard to say things in favor of affirmative action. Well, well, he was just affirmative action from the right, just the token black person that they wanted to put on the court. He's not so smart. Look at how he never asks questions. But if you've actually looked at why he doesn't ask questions during oral arguments, he actually has a really good explanation. His explanation is that he just says that it doesn't accomplish anything. We've already read everything we need to know in the briefs. If somebody doesn't ask a question that I think needs to be asked, I'm going to ask it, but that doesn't come up all that often because they usually brief things pretty well. And he said, you know, to a large part, oral arguments are theater. And and he just doesn't feel like he has to take part in that theater. And yeah. and I think that that's perfectly fair. Plus, you know, people used to say, oh, he's just like Scalia. He just does whatever Scalia says. When you've actually been to law school and read a lot of Justice Thomas opinions and Justice Scalia opinions, they're not that similar. They're, they actually have very different views on a lot of things. It's really yeah. – un- it's – Bizarre. This, this mean girl bandwagoning that yeah. exists in, you know, in any group. Um, and sadly, you know, we'd like to think of ourselves uh, to the extent that we think of ourselves as sort of. It's like a, it's like a, it would be like a joke to call us like of the left right. uh, when you know, particularly given that we were just talking about like European political parties. Uh, right. Earlier in this Where they're very different on their left. Yeah, but whatever we are, like, it's obviously in our group as well. 
And it's really ugly. I mean, wherever it comes from, it's ugly. You know, the, the things you said just then uh, about Clarence Thomas, you know, they're just, just like easy, cheap shots that people can trade amongst one another to prove that they're of a certain right. persuasion. Those you are know, your tribal shibboleths. Exactly. They're just look, tribal. I know how to make fun of, of Justice Thomas for various things. Exactly. That's all it is. Exactly. I know how to make fun of him. I know how we make fun of him, and I can do it. Watch me perform. Right. And it's uh, it's pointless and stupid. And it takes us away from the real issue, which is, you know, the Clarence Thomas. The, there was a documentary I saw last year about Anita Hill, um, which was obviously exactly. dispiriting. Which is a real um, thing. Yeah, because there are two real things about Justice Thomas that that we should be talking about. And one is, you know, there's the Anita Hill thing. But two, there's also his views are just kind of his views aren't stupid. His views are well formed in their own domain. His views are just crazy and terrible. And <laughs> like that's a bigger right. like we people want to go after him for these other things, but no, this is a very this is, he is a smart man. I've read his opinions. He thinks through what he's talking about. He's not stupid. It's just that yeah. his views are abhorrent to me on many issues. And yeah. that's the part that we should be focusing on, but it's really hard to do that because it's so much easier to take cheap shots. And if there's yep. one thing this whole podcast is about, it's about no cheap shots. No Ooh. cheap shots. Well, no, we'll, we'll still make the occasional cheap shot. Um, <laughs> I know I've made a few. Um, but if there's one thing this podcast is about, it's it's not so much never making a cheap shot as it is being able to look past the cheap shot and trying to come to a real conclusion about it. We want people who want, who listen to this show to think about Clarence Thomas and know enough that if they're going to criticize him, they know that he's not stupid, that they know that the things people say about him aren't really fair criticisms, except for the ones that are fair. You know, that's essentially, <laughs> that's essentially the point. Like we, this show right. is about trying to sift through the nonsense and get to the, get to the real useful stuff. And on that note, um, I think it's about time for us to call this a wrap because we're trying to make these shows shorter. And also because this podcast, which is supposed to be about all of America's cultural divisions, ended up being entirely about one, which is to say individual effort versus um, versus structural uh, problems. And so um, I'm going to go right to my sign off right now where I'm going to give you the first of many rants that you will hear about dealing with people in wheelchairs. Now, this is one that drives me crazy. I'm just going to do these, you know, one at a time when they come up in sign-offs because I don't want to make it too long, and I want to make it things you can actually remember, and one at a time is going to be more memorable. So here is a specific thing that drives me crazy. On the metros in D.C., um, there's not always good wheelchair seating, wheelchair, a wheelchair spot in any particular car. Um, but some of the more recent ones now have spaces. They've got a little handicap symbol there, and there's no there's no uh, there's no seat there, so there's an open space to park your wheelchair. Those are some of the most popular places for people to just stand. And there's a little handicap sign right there. And I've had people who will get in the metro right in front of me. They've seen me. I know they've seen me. They step in, and then they stand exactly in that spot to block the entire thing. And I go up and I sort of like nudge them and go like, "Excuse me." 
and then they'll like slightly adjust but not do anything to let me get in that platform and i'll just keep pushing them until they eventually get out of my way and oh look God. i have no idea how many times i did stuff like this to people in wheelchairs before i was in a wheelchair because i wasn't thinking about it i honestly have no idea i don't think that people who do that are inconsiderate i don't think that they're stupid I think that they just don't know. And so I want to make every rant I can to let people know not to do stuff like that. That, that. Those spots on the metro cars are for people in wheelchairs to park their wheelchairs. Because otherwise, I have to keep moving every time the doors open, which is tricky for me when you're trying. You, what you want to do if you're in a wheelchair on a metro car, you want to find a spot where you don't have to move at every stop. Because if it gets crowded, it's very, you can't step to the left, you can't step to the right. You can only go forward or backward. And there are lots of circumstances where people sort of expect me to move, but it is not physically possible for me to move. And everyone else should be moving. And the worst part about it is that when you're in a wheelchair, you are largely looking down at the floor a lot. Because you don't want to you know, run into things, run over things, have problems. You're looking at the floor a lot, so you see everybody's feet, and you can see how inefficiently they're using all of the space. <laughs> you can see how if that stupid person right there would just move a few feet to the right, that we would all fit perfectly. But no, people want me to move. Uh, anyway, that's just going to be my rant for today. I'll leave you with that right now because I got to run to some stuff. See you guys next time. Bye. All right. That's funny.